0: you're listening to the Stellar Life Project Podcast, the podcast for modern leaders who are tired of hustle culture and ready to invite more ease into their lives. I'm your host, Deborah Stellingworth. I'm a master teacher and coach, and I'm obsessed with helping you avoid burnout, create a sustainable lifestyle, and still enjoy optimal success on your terms in your career or business. You'll hear inspiring stories of possibility from my guests, and you'll get empowering strategies from me to support you in creating and living your own stellar life. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is an award-winning CPA and financial educator from Calgary, Alberta. She is a passionate keynote speaker on the topic of financial feminism. Her company, The Wealth Building Academy, educates and empowers women to take control of their financial future. For the last decade, she has been writing and speaking about money, most recently launching an investing course called The Wealth Lab to teach individuals how to invest. Her TEDx Calgary talk, Reimagine Finance, for Millennials, aired in June 2021. You want to make sure to check that out. It's awesome. And she is currently writing a book to share more of her wisdom while she's raising her one-year-old son. Welcome to the show, Janine Rogan. So glad to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Excellent. So let's just dive right in with you telling us a little bit about your story because the people that I have on the show they get an invitation because they fascinate me in some way and you fascinated me and inspired me and so I wanted to share you with my people and my audience so that you could inspire them as well and you have such an interesting story and an important mission in the world that I am completely a hundred percent behind because I think it's super important so tell us how you got started in this journey like I talk a lot about this zone of genius. This is what the Stellar Life project was all about was me getting into my zone of genius and helping other people get there. So how did you know that the work you're doing was your zone of genius and what led you there?
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting question because when I look back, my mom is a CPA and I never wanted to end up in the field of business. I remember telling her when I was in high school like I have no idea what you do. I don't want to be an accountant. That's weird. And so I ended up in university, actually starting in the faculty of engineering because I was good at math and I hated it. And I ended up trying a bunch of different faculties and then ultimately actually found myself in the faculty of business in an accounting major. And during that time, I actually had a girlfriend who was taking a class in human ecology and it was a class around personal finance. And she came out of this class and they had to do this book report. And she said, I think you should read this book. It's called The Automatic Millionaire. It's really cool. And so that is what initially piqued my interest in the finance space. And when I read that book... I started to look at how I would work, let's say for a full-time summer job. And I really didn't have any money to show for all that hard work at the end of the day. I was always kind of taught to save some money for a rainy day, but really nothing after that. And I think in university you end up spending your money on a lot of things, obviously university and going out with friends. And so I I originally was a little bit almost frustrated with myself around that. And so that's really what piqued my interest. And that's when I started doing a lot of self-learning around money and investing, because even though I'm an accountant by trade, it's really not something we're taught in school, even in university. We're taught as CPAs, how to manage businesses and manage companies, but not to manage our own finances. So that has evolved over the years. And I've really honed in on educating women because I do feel like there's a huge gap in the financial industry around um, their education
0: and their confidence when it comes to money hmm What I appreciate about the work that you do, Janina, what you just said is how you had that experience of being taught how to do the numbers so you could do the balance sheets and all of that, but it doesn't address this other side of how we interact with our money, how we relate to it. Like you said, you were frustrated with yourself. And I know a lot of people who I work with and, and I've had that experience myself of shame because I don't know how to manage the money or don't know how to make it grow or get out of debt or whatever it might be. And so what I really appreciate about the way you said is that there's two sides to this equation. It's not just about crunching the numbers. So you've brought in this other side that's a very human element to it and I agree with you. I just heard the other day. I've heard too many of these stories of women who find themselves suddenly widowed. Yes. And have no clue about the finance. And these are not old people right? Sometimes they're younger women and they have no clue. And any number of circumstances that happen, there's just this unawareness. And it's no wonder, right? Like money is power. And for thousands of years, women have distanced themselves from power because powerful women got burned at the stake. So of course, right? So I think it's so important, the work that you're doing. So say more about that. What, um, what is that work? What is it looking like now?
1: Yeah. And you hit on so many great things. And that's really where this notion of financial feminism came from, is really getting to the point where there is financial equality for everybody. And you touched on power. And I think that that's so important because the financial system, and let's be honest, the world, was set up by older white men, the patriarchy, and it serves them. And If we keep going the same way we're going, it's always going to serve them. So it's not, again, just about crunching the numbers. There are programs that can do that for you. You can Mm -hmm. type things into a calculator. You do not need to be good at math. But what we need to start dismantling and understanding is it's not just about, oh, just save more money or, oh, just invest there is so much to unpack from a societal level on why women have less money or why they have to spend more money on things like the pink tax is a great example, right? It just costs more to be a woman than to be a man. So we have less disposable income. So it's not until we start dismantling that and adding levels of intersectionality that we can really, really understand what women are actually up against when it comes
0: to managing their money. Mm -hmm. I like that you said that, too, at a societal level. And then there's the personal level that's influenced by that societal level. So Mm -hmm. it is a really complex issue. So when you're working with individuals, how do you bring this into your practice? Because I understand you've got the Wealth Lab and that's that program. I want to know more about that in a moment. But tell us a little bit about how in your practice this comes in, that you have opportunities to support women that may be a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I think, so the first piece of it is always education. So really understanding, and I think this helps a lot of women, that it's not necessarily their fault that the system is set up in ways that does a disservice to them. So another example of that is on average women have higher mortgage rates by about 0.4% than men do. And if we add on like, levels of intersectionality, people of color face even worse stereotypes. So, you know, mm-hmm. just even understanding things like that can help women negotiate a better rate when they go to their banks because they know that they need to do that to get on the same page as men or can we look at how you can increase mm-hmm. your income so that you do have more disposable income. I mean, there's lots of little things you can do as well. Like if you go and look at, like I said, the pink tax, I use a men's razor because they're cheaper than a pink mm-hmm. razor. And really at the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference. So there's lots of different ways that it comes into practice as small mm-hmm. as, you know, buying a unisex product all the way up to negotiating a raise or negotiating mm-hmm. your mortgage rate and learning to invest because we need to start closing that investing gap.
0: Yes. So many nuggets there. I just want to make sure that people caught that part. It's like the unisex razor, the pink tax, And I think most of us are becoming aware of that. I mean, I say to my husband all the time, I'm like, it's more expensive to be me than it is to be you. Even my haircut or my hair products, right? And shampoo is shampoo, but you put a pink label on it, not to mention other feminine products, but that's an easy fix. The point that I want to go back to is what you said though, is that teaching women, letting them know you can negotiate
1: because that's Mm -hmm. another
0: level of the societal issues that women face, they don't even realize that negotiating is an option, that they can negotiate. And the second thing you said was they can look at how much their income is and decide how much they wanna make. Again, another thing that if you're an entrepreneur, it's a decision, but if you're working for somebody else, you can negotiate that. And that's always such a surprise to women. So I wanted to pause on that for a second and just thank you for that reminder for the audience that it's negotiable. Everything's negotiable.
1: Yes, everything is negotiable. I always tell people there are so many things that you can negotiate. And if you think you can't negotiate it, like I'm the person that goes into the store. And if I'm buying something, I'm just like, is there any discounts that you have available or you can offer me? Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it mm-hmm. doesn't hurt to ask.
0: hmm. And I think there's some shame around somebody saying no. We have this kind of, um, I I wonder if it's what your opinion is. I I think it's a classism even, right? That, oh, that somehow I am poor or less than or, or something's gauche about asking for a discount. I think some people have that feeling. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I think there's a difference between being
1: cheap and being frugal. I've found in the research that I've done that a lot of wealthy women are actually frugal. And so to just differentiate the two cheap would be, you know, using maybe something. And I mean, maybe some of our parents are like this, using your frying pan until it absolutely, the pan handle has already fallen off and it's starting to be see-through, but you can still use it. Um, And they refuse to buy another one. And if they do, it's going to be the absolute lowest price, no matter what. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you contrast that with frugal, frugal is being smart with your money. So you might buy something that is of value to you, and you might spend less or buy the cheapest thing of something that is not of value to you. Um, So an example I use is uh, brand name garbage bags. There is something about brand name garbage bags. I don't know what it is, but like I've tried to use the no-name ones, and I got to go with the brand name. So that's something I'm willing to spend money on because it's an Mm -hmm. experience that I don't want to have happen to me. But there might be something else, like I said, the razor. It does the function. Mm -hmm. I don't need... A brand name one, I'm just gonna buy the cheapest one out there. But it's really putting those dollars to work. And if that means asking for a discount, that's just a smarter way of allocating those resources. We all have limited resources when it comes to our finances. And so just stretching those dollars to make them give us as much value as we can is a great way of thinking about being frugal.
0: Mm -hmm. I really appreciate those examples. It's about being intentional and thoughtful about where you use your resources where you invest your money. Cause even like investing, I'm with you on the garbage bags, by the way. Right. So it's, it, there's a difference. And so I want to, ch- and I loved how you said it. It's like, it's about the experience. It has nothing to do with what other people think. And it's everything about the experience you're having. And that's what I was getting at before when I asked about the people feeling cheap, if they ask for a discount, it's like not about that. Right. It's about what experience you want to have?
1: Yeah, and if you take it one step further, obviously the garbage bag is kind of a silly example, but if you look at that and you say, I'm going to spend less in my life to the tune of $50 a week, maybe I'm not buying lunches out or I'm not going to buy takeout coffee or whatever because those things don't give me joy or don't give me a lot of value, and you put that towards a nice dinner out with a friend or a trip those are actually things down the road that are going to give you a lot of value. So again, like the garbage bag, a bit of a silly example, but Mm -hmm. you can extend that into your life and apply it so that there's a much
0: larger impact hmm. I'm going to push back on you. So it's not a silly example because it gives you joy. Right. And so it's a great example of how ordinary things can give us so much pleasure. And when you were talking about that, it made me think about what advice you give people when they're struggling with making those decisions, because I know that you're a CPA and you're also educating and teaching in your Wealth Lab about how to relate to money and how to invest and do this thing. So when they're struggling with making the decision to not have the coffee so they can go on the trip, what advice would you give them?
1: The first thing I always tell people is to really be able to outline your values. So what are your top three values? Mine are spending time with my family being number one. So if there is a trip and I I love travel, so travel would be number two. And so if there is something that I can see that's really not giving me value or doesn't align with those things, um, I would encourage people to go through their spending and figure out what their top couple spending categories are. So, you know, is it takeout coffee? Is it buying lunch out? Or is it travel? And see if your spending actually aligns with those things that you are saying are your values. Now, for me, like, I love getting a latte in the morning, so I'm not giving that up. And I'm not asking people to, um, if it's something that actually does bring you joy. So I think everyone's items are going to be different. For some people, it's having a really, really nice espresso maker at home. And that journey of creating their own coffee is like, like almost mm. ritualistic for them. For other people, it might be walking down to the coffee shop and saying hello to everyone and getting that latte and sitting there and mm-hmm. doing a little bit of people watching or reading a book. So neither one is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just looking at what your values are and what your values are for your family. And if you have a partner, including that in there as well, and then really aligning your spending towards that. So again, just allocating your money, allocating your resources to the things that give you value.
0: Mm -hmm. So what is absolutely wonderful about that to me is there's this focus on being really present and aware, aware of what you're spending and why you're spending it. So on the Mm -hmm. one hand, it's just actually knowing what is going out. So I would say that if you run out of money at the end of the month, they want to know where it's going, but it's amazing how many people don't look at it. They're running out, but they're not looking at where it's going. So I think what happens is there's a a lack of presence on both sides of that equation. So the way you described it, Janine, is it like be really present to exactly what you're spending and where and be really present when you're experiencing where you're using your money as a tool to bring you joy in your life. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I love that being present. And, you know, it's not about sitting and crunching numbers in Excel trying to figure out where you spent money. Most banks, most financial institutions do have some sort of a spending app. So, you know, I'm never going to be the person that's like, you went $3 over on your grocery budget this month. Like what the hell? I think (laughs) when you look at the, maybe the pie chart that the, the finance institution creates for you and you say, okay, I'm spending $1,200 on eating out a month. Is that giving me $1,200 worth of joy? Or could some of it, maybe not all of it be allocated to a trip, or paying down debt, because it's really stressing me out. So again, also being present with the emotions that money causes you. So Mm -hmm. some people to have debt is like extremely crippling. So for them, it's going to make more sense to work on paying down that debt faster than someone who maybe just purchases things on an impulse because they're lonely or sad, versus someone who maybe has an emotional reaction to the ups and downs of the stock market. So personal finance at the end of the day is personal. And I think that's Mm -hmm. probably why it's called that. And Mm -hmm. I think, again, the industry has done a disservice and just saying like, oh, it's all about saving money and, you know, just investing and that's the end of it. But there's so many layers of complexity with emotions, Mm -hmm. with money trauma, with stories, with joy. Everything kind of flows into our money story for sure.
0: Yeah. And that's an important thing to dig into is what your money story is. And now you and I travel in the the circles of personal growth. And so we talk about money stories, but I remember that this is a fairly new idea to me. I mean, I always had a money story and I can look back and see how it was playing out. But the concept of having a money story is something that really in the last, say, 10 years kind of came on my radar because of the space I moved into with entrepreneurship and personal growth. But everybody has it and there's so much value in finding out what are your family stories about money? Like what what did you learn from your family about money and how to relate to it and whether you deserve to have it? And, you know, we talk about our net worth and it's so interesting because we talk about our self-worth and our net worth and we seem to tie those together when they're actually completely unrelated. Absolutely. And yet we have a social system that actually exalts people who have money and they're somehow better than the rest of the people who don't have money, which is completely untrue, but it becomes part of our story. And so we really have to make sure we unpack that. So thanks for that reminder.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there are lots of people that have lots of different money traumas in their life. So everything from, I have a friend who her parents always bought no name food because they said they had no money, but then at the checkout, mom would throw in a $7 magazine for herself. And so what does that tell that child seeing that? The mom obviously did not mean to hurt or harm the child. It was probably something she did without thinking, but how does that impact us and how can we unpack that and what does Mm -hmm. that mean? So there's a scarcity mindset there. How do we unpack that to say, No, there is the ability to make more money. There's the ability to call in more revenue if I'm in a business or ask for more money from a raise or start a side hustle. So there are ways to look at it from more of an abundance mindset as opposed to scarcity. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example. There's so many examples of people that have money trauma. It could be the other way where, Mm You know, there are families that they don't really connect and have good emotional connections. So they just throw money at the problem. And that's a whole other side of the spectrum. So it's yeah. really just understanding what, you're, what has caused you to think and behave the way mm-hmm. you do about money.
0: Yes, because when we're children, no matter what's happening and no matter how great of a job our parents are doing, our little brains are going to make it mean something that then we have to later deal with. We've all got, it. I've got some stories about that too. My mother's closet full of amazing clothes and how little I had. Right. And mm-hmm. then I remember she also paid a lot of money for my dance classes, but it was totally. interesting for a while that I was thinking, oh, well, my mom has nice clothes, but she doesn't care about me because I don't have, get to have nice clothes. Well, of course not. Cause we were spending thousands of dollars a year for my dancing. Right. So, but it took me a while to get there. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I felt like, oh, I didn't deserve to have nice things. That's just yeah. how my brain put it together. Right. So I think it's um, it's there's some real important self-reflection and self-work you can do there. um, I do work with that with my clients. Janine, I know you do some of that in your your program. There's money coaches, there are counselors available if you're looking for yeah. some support for the money trauma, the money story that might be getting in your way.
1: Yeah. And I would say if you do have really deep money trauma where they're was a lot of scarcity of like not being able to put food on the table. I think it would be really important to work with a therapist about that, like an actual registered psychologist. And there are registered psychologists Mm -hmm. that do specialize in money as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's such great advice. So can you tell us a little bit about the Wealth Lab and how people can access it, what you're doing there? Yeah. So when the
1: pandemic started, my business kind of got turned on its head a little bit. So I used to do a lot of Kind of small workshops in in the calgary edmonton canada regions obviously in person which i love in person speaking on stages those are my favorite things but obviously a pandemic had other plans but i still really felt that it was so important for people to be able to access this information so my company the wealth building academy i've set out to build courses predominantly geared towards women. Men can take them too. There's no, I guess, bias there, but I built it with women in mind. The Wealth Lab is a six-module course that walks you through everything you need to know to get started investing. And I think that this is really important because at the end of the day, women are paid Less The wage gap is real, and that perpetuates into the savings gap, the investing mm-hmm. gap, and then ultimately the wealth gap. So women actually hold only about 30% of the financial assets that men hold. And so to start to close that, we need to be investing. Mm-hmm. We need to be mm-hmm. making those returns so that we can build wealth and start to close that gap. So I have a couple of courses out. There are some smaller ones. The Wealth Lab is my biggest course, and it is available
0: at thewealthbuildingacademy.com. Amazing. You know, it's so interesting when you say women hold 30% of the wealth and yet I think we're responsible for like 70 or 80% of the spending. Is that accurate?
1: Our spending power is much, much higher, which is very interesting when you actually look at what that means in a dynamic of, let's say a heterosexual couple. So you have women making all these purchasing decisions, but it's the men man's job in general to manage the wealth or um, be working with a financial advisor. And going back to what you said earlier, I've personally seen way too many people, again, either divorce or death of a spouse um, and just women ending up in terrible, terrible financial positions and What really struck me actually, and I look back, I think this desire to work with women has always been there. I remember my professor. So I actually ended up going back to my story. I actually ended up taking that personal finance course and I met with that professor and she was kind of actually the one who got me interested in a couple of the nonprofit organizations here in Alberta. But she worked as a financial counselor with veterans. And one of the stories was how this woman came in to see her and her husband had died overseas in a war and she couldn't even pay the utility bill because her name wasn't on the account. And I think I was like 19 or 20. And I just like my heart still breaks for her probably even more now, but like not knowing the financial passwords Mm -hmm. or not being able to pay the utility bill, like because you're maybe your last names are different or you're not on the utility bill. Like these are the stupid things that are in our financial industry that really hurt women. Because like, if you have your electricity turned off, like, that's a huge problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: Yeah. So if there's any women listening to this, you have to know you can't live mm-hmm. with your head in the sand. And I know we've been taught that we've been taught not to talk about money. It's taboo. It's unladylike. It's greedy, whatever. Burn that all down.
0: Mm-hmm. You yeah. need to
1: know where the money is. You need to know what you're invested in. And you need to make sure that if something did happen, you could pay the utility bill.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not as scary as it seems like whenever anything's unfamiliar, we're afraid of it. And we may not have the language for it, but you can learn the language. And Mm -hmm. I think that you'll agree with me. This is the advice I give to people. Get yourself informed enough that you can then make decisions that are guided by somebody who knows even more than you do. Absolutely. Right. So I'm imagining your programs, and I haven't done them yet, but I'm imagining your program isn't about them becoming financial experts so they're going to go work on Wall Street, right? This is just about them having enough information that they can actually know who to trust and things will make sense. Yeah,
1: Totally. And we do talk about financial advisors in the course, and you can decide whether or not you want to go down that path, but you need to know the questions to ask a financial advisor. Or, you know, tax season is coming up, and a lot of people say, well, I just let my accountant deal with it. And that's fine. You can have your accountant do your taxes. But at the end of the day, you're the person signing your tax return and you're on the hook with the CRA. So you need to have enough information to be dangerous and understand Mm -hmm. what's going on and understand that everything is, you know, making sense is in line. And you have to have financial professionals in your corner that are willing to explain these things to you. And if they're not, and if they talk down to you, fire them because they're not Mm -hmm. serving you. And there are people in this industry that are going to approach it with empathy and education. And I think that that's so important.
0: Absolutely. And I've had experiences. One of my stuff was with the bank. And it was just like, every time I went in, there was a different person at the desk. So we moved to a private wealth management company. And then you get that. And what's really neat about the way I've grown into this is having a team. And I Mm -hmm. I love that concept of having a team, an accountant, an advisor, a lawyer, who all know each other. Ideally, it doesn't have to be the case, but it's so wonderful when you can put a team together. And I think that's something for people to keep in mind. And is that something you talk about in the program as well?
1: Not specifically around like having a lawyer and an accountant, if you have like Mm. more of a simple financial situation, but definitely you need to have those people in your corner and it's going to depend on what stage of life you're in. So you may need insurance, life insurance, for example. So that's going to be someone else that you probably would be looking to have in your corner. But at the end of the day, I always tell people, you really need to look and understand at how people are compensated. So you said you always walked into the bank. I used to do that too. But they're compensated by selling specific mutual funds with higher fees. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that you can't do that because financial advisors can be paid that way too. And that's fine as long as you understand that bias. And if you understand that bias, then you can make a decision and you can understand how that decision is going to impact you. So really Mm -hmm. when you're looking to hire financial professionals, you need to understand how they're compensated. And at the end of the day, they may have their best interest at heart. You hope in a lot of cases, they'll also have your best interest at heart, but you can also then see through some of the biases that they might have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to get paid for what they're totally. doing because they are bringing expertise to the table and it's okay for you to ask how they're getting paid and even another place to negotiate. I don't know if you can negotiate rates, but it's a means of negotiating almost because you're at least by asking the question, yeah. you're negotiating for yourself because you're then you're able to decide am I willing to pay that or not?
1: Well, and it doesn't necessarily always have to be a percentage point. So if we look at a salary, right? So you're not always, when you get a job, it's not just the salary you're negotiating. You might negotiate another week of vacation. You might negotiate a bonus. You might negotiate flexible work from home. So if you take that and apply that to a financial professional, maybe they are willing to give you a certain number of sessions per year. Maybe you negotiate another one. Maybe uh, you have a kid. So you want the financial advisor to also manage that portfolio for the same fee. And maybe they wouldn't have fallen into that bracket if they didn't have a certain level of income. So there, there are lots of different ways you can look at negotiating and getting value out of that without just focusing on the fee. Because you're right, sometimes these fees are set by the institutions and they don't have a lot of power over that.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's great advice, right? There's always something it reminds me of Chris Voss talks about that, right? There's always some other way to get something that's going to be a benefit and have value. So I love that. There's a few more questions I have for you. And, and I, you know, I could talk to you all day about this because I think this money piece is so important. It's a, it's one of the points on the five, on the, the five points of the stellar life project star is the money piece because it's so, so important. And I just, this is why I was so excited to have you here. I'm going to send people over to the... TEDx talk that you did because it's just wonderful and so informative, especially if you're a millennial or you have millennials in your life. So can we address that specific? It's a really specific um focus because to be a millennial in this financial world where property values are increasing and it becomes less and less likely that young people will own homes, like in Paris and London. So many people think they're never going to own a home. Home ownership is not expected. Where there's enough of us still alive in North America's where we think, yeah, we have the right to own a home or we're going to be able to do that. And we're moving away from that in many ways for millennials. So I love that you really address them and their specific issues. So can you just tell us a little bit about your work with millennials and what you want them to know?
1: Yeah. So I am a millennial, but my work with millennials and digging into this, what you're talking about, these generational differences in how we accumulate and manage our wealth really stemmed actually from the conversations I was having with my mom. And in the the TEDx talk, I talk about the fact that we're both CPAs. We both graduated from the same university and we both articled at the same accounting firm just 30 years apart. And so it's really interesting when you compare and contrast Our starting salaries with the cost of housing, because my mom and I have had these conversations and she'd be like, oh, well, like, you know, it was hard when I was growing up, too. And it's like it's not to take away from any generation and say who had it harder. But when we look at Mm -hmm. the fact that it's like 10 to 12 times a starting salary right now to own a home It can feel impossible to do that. And I think there is a flip on how we need to think about wealth and think about success. Because I think for so long, it's been graduate university, find a significant other, get married, buy a house, have a kid. And that's just not the way it's going to be anymore. And there is a great book actually called The Wealthy Renter that I would encourage anyone Mm. to read that is maybe thinking that they will be in the rental market long-term. And there's actually information to suggest that if you were to take the money that you would be paying more for owning a home as opposed to renting and investing that, you'll actually end up in a better financial position. So unfortunately, society has told us We're not successful unless we own a home, but I'm here to tell you that you don't need to own a home to be successful. It is okay to be a renter. And I think, again, maybe there's some money trauma that we need to lean into there or understand why that has been perpetuated through different generations.
0: Okay, that is gold. i would not heard of that. I know one fellow who's a professor where I, I did my master's degree and he's like, nope, I'm going to be a renter. I'm going to rent forever. And I, maybe he had that perspective on it. And I could never understand why. And You've just really made it clear. Okay, well, that's interesting. Because yeah, when you think about the amount of interest we're paying over time, what can we do with it? Let's look at things in a different way. That's fascinating to me. I want to get that book and wow.
1: And if you think about it, you're either paying the bank rent in the sense to rent the money to buy the house or you're paying rent. So either way, you're paying mm. for a place to live unless you're buying your house in cash, which not many of us can do.
0: no. Or buying it somewhere where, like, I mean, I'm in Vancouver, one of the most expensive cities in at least the country, if not the world. And I know Calgary's getting up there as yeah. well, becoming more and more popular. So what great advice. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate the work that you're doing there. So I want to turn our attention to you and away from money for a second, because I think we, yes, we need to money trauma is important. Let's talk about this. You do so much. You work for someone else. Yes. You have your own business. You have a speaking business and a one-year-old. Yes, I do. <laughs> how do you manage it all? So how are you doing all that? Like what are what are your non-negotiables for self-care and managing your resources of time and energy?
1: So I will say my house is never clean. We've hired help definitely to help with that because I don't believe in like I don't want to say doing it all, but like there are things that are more important to me and like having an immaculate house 100% of the time is not it. So I will say that is probably one of the areas that I definitely drop the ball. My husband also works full time. I would say, though, that having a supportive partner to step up when Mm -hmm. I am working late into the night or am needing to travel for a speaking engagement, I wouldn't be able to do it without him. He is obviously my number one cheerleader and always encouraging me to go and do more things, which is fantastic. But sleep is my number one non-negotiable I need. And I am someone who probably needs like eight to nine hours of sleep a night. So seven is pushing it for me, but I make sure that is my number one because I cannot get things done and I cannot be efficient at getting things done if I don't have sleep. So that's my my number one for sure when it comes to non-negotiables.
0: Mm, so, so important. And I, I appreciate that. I'm with you. I'm an eight to nine hour person as well. And I think it's important that we speak up. Yes. The 5 a.m. club, the miracle morning, it's not for everybody. It's never going to happen for me. Not going to happen for me. I tried it for a little while, made myself sick. And so I think it's important to see this like choosing what's right for you. And if you can do 5 a.m. club, you can do intermittent fasting. You can go without sleep. Good on you. And there's a lot of us over here is like, nope, that doesn't work for us. And it's okay to say so. In fact, we've come out of a period of time where it was like a status symbol to not sleep. And we're really shifting. The most successful people are saying eight hours is a pretty good idea.
1: Oh, and if I don't get eight hours, like there's a nap in there for sure. Like whether it's a 30 minute nap or whatever. (laughs) But like after raising a one year old for a year, like their naps are, if you don't get enough sleep at night, naps are key, I would say. Because, you know, then I go and look at my to do list and if I'm tired, like my brain is going to be all over the place. I'm going to maybe start one thing, get distracted and go work on a different thing. And then, you know, three hours have passed and I've really not done anything. Whereas if I'm well rested and I'm in the zone, I can knock off mm-hmm. like it is. I will say I have a, a weird ability to do things in a very short amount of time, but I can only do that because I have slept the appropriate amount of hours.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. See the parallels, ladies and gentlemen, between how you manage your money and how you manage your sleep, because your sleep is what fuels your energy. So totally. we want to manage both of those things. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And also, I mean, a question I would have asked you was about the relationship and how you manage that. And you really showed us that, you know, you obviously are in partnership and communication with your partner and making sure that you Manage that time as well, and there's some give and take there. So it's beautiful to hear that. Now, as we come to the end of our our time together, it's been amazing to learn from you. There's just so many golden nuggets and things that I hope everyone will act on. Um, How can we? I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. And then I'm going to ask you where they can find you and how they can get in touch with you and okay. how they can book you for speaking and all of that. So let's start with those rapid fire questions. All so, right. Now, this is one of my favorites and we'll see how, you, how it goes with you. Okay. So first question, Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek. Oh, good girl. <laughs> it was my first one. Thank you. Yeah. My dad, my dad uh, watched
1: it growing up. So
0: I'm a Star Trek fan all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Oh, wonderful. Favorite place to visit? I'm going to say Hawaii. Nice. Zodiac sign Taurus. Ooh. Scariest thing you ever did? Having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm with you. That's scary. <laughs> non negotiable self care ritual, which is different than sleep. Sleep is like an essential. What would be a self care ritual that's non negotiable for you? I think beyond like, your sleep. On the weekends,
1: having time to just do nothing. So if that means, you know, laying in bed for half an hour and not getting up or just relaxing on the couch and reading a book, uh, I think having, giving yourself permission. And this was something that my husband actually did have to teach me because I probably came into the relationship not being able to do that, but just giving yourself permission to not be productive a hundred percent of the time. Mm,
0: such a, such a, good thing to learn. And we we're all, that's, we're all challenged without, it. especially, I mean, obviously you're a high producer, you, you're, you're high achiever, you do a lot of things. We have to learn to slow down. And, and again, I'm just seeing the parallels between your view of money and your view of energy. And this is why it's so important to do the work. A lot of people come to me cause they're overwhelmed. They want to get out of burnout. They want to heal those patterns of, of how they burn through their energy and they don't realize that there's a parallel to working. Because I always say, let's do both. Let's look at your money. Let's look at your energy. How are you using those resources? And we see in the things that you've shared how they're so parallel. So thank you for that. A book that you are most inspired by? Oh, there are so many good ones. I think Educated was a really good
1: one that was inspirational around um continuous learning and and always, no matter the obstacle, trying to find a way to get that education
0: and and better yourself. Nice. Thank you. And if you were a city, who would you be? Paris. It's my girl. Me too. Let's be Paris together. Yes, I love Paris. I knew that. Yeah, me too. So, okay. Something you haven't done yet that's on your dream list. If I'm thinking really big, like
1: I guess professionally, it would be to get onto the TED Women stage.
0: Yes. Wait for it, people. She's putting it out into the universe. We're going to see her on the TED Women stage. I have no doubt that will happen. Yeah. And what would you call your So, you know, I've got my life. My life was called the Stellar Life Project, and then it ended up becoming a coaching business and a podcast. And what would you call your life slash business if it was a project? I guess probably the Financial Feminist Project. Mm, nice. You can go ahead and I'm use like that. i TM. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And then the final question, success leaves clues. If you could leave one clue or tip for others who are going to come behind you, what would that clue be?
1: To ask for things you want. And I say this because I think so often we don't ask or try and make an opportunity out of something. And especially as women, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So there's been times where I've even been like, oh, I don't know if I should like apply for this or ask for this. And it's like, no, I always try and remember this quote that fortune favors the bold. So go after what you want, ask. I've emailed companies for like cold calls for jobs and it has turned out for me six months down the road. So who knows?
0: Yeah, you don't know. You're right. It's always know if you don't ask. And that's a big part of the work I do in the world, actually, is teaching women and supporting them and asking for what they want. And it starts with figuring out what it is first, because we go back a step to we don't ask for it because we haven't even taken the time to ask ourselves a lot of the times because we just assume that we just have to let things happen to us. So I think that's just beautiful advice. Ask for what you want. Janine thank you so much for joining us today it's been just magical and we're going to do Paris together sometime (laughs) tell us how people can get in touch with you how they can join your programs hire you to speak for their audience yeah where they can find you so I would say I'm probably most active on Instagram so my
1: handle there is just at Janine Rogan and my email address is hello at JanineRogan.com. So very, very simple. I have a newsletter and on Instagram, I provide advice and tips and tricks around money management. And then my website, thewealthbuildingacademy.com is really where you can look for some of my programs. I love speaking to audiences, whether it's a small group at a company or a big stage. Again, I can't wait to get back in person because I have not had that experience Mm -hmm. yet, but that is my favorite part of this work is working with people face-to-face.
0: Yes. Wonderful. Uh, yes. Follow, follow Janine on Instagram and you can learn one Instagram post at a time yeah. how to better manage your money and improve your relationship with money. So thank you for the work that you do in the world. Thank you for sharing your time and energy with me today. I hope to see you again soon at a W North event. Yes. That's where we met. You take care and we're going to watch you and see. Can't wait to see you on the TEDx women's stage. Thank you. Bye Janine. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and follow us wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. I'm your host, Debra Stellingworth. See you next week on the Stellar Life Project podcast.